Let's pray together. Your love indeed endures forever. We thank you that it is your love that summons us, that invites us in, that invites us to worship and to trust and to pray and to sing. We thank you that you are a God of love. And so we grieve when we see hate. We grieve when we see woundedness. God, we pray for our nation. We pray for those impacted by the bomb scares this week. We pray, Lord, that you will let peace prevail and turn our nation back towards civility and understanding and away from polarization and hate. We pray for the people of Pittsburgh. We pray for the people in that synagogue who are grieving the loss of family members and friends. Lord, it is hard for us to understand how someone could do this. And so we pray for that person. Turn that person's life. And God, we pray that you stay the hand of anyone else who's plotting something, that you will intervene and stop these things. And Lord, give us the courage to pray and speak against violence in all forms. Help us to be peacemakers, whether that's in our own suite or apartment or house, or whether that's in our nation. We want to be people after your own heart, people of love and peace. And so forgive, too, the hate we carry. Forgive us when we look down on other people and we think that their politics are stupid and they just don't understand. Forgive us. Show us, Holy Spirit, how these things lurk in the shadows of our own hearts and then cleanse us. Cleanse us and so that we can be washed whiter than snow. Turn us from hate toward understanding and compassion. And we do pray for the United States as we look at midterm elections coming up. And we pray for all those who are running. We pray for all those who will be elected to be people of integrity, people who will show us how to have good discourse together. God, we pray for our community. We pray for Calvin College. We pray for the people who are working on the next strategic plan. We pray for the Board of Trustees who just met this weekend. We're grateful for their work, and we pray that your efforts among them will bear fruit. And tonight, Lord, we pray for the Fuller Project Neighborhood House. We're so grateful for this intentional community where people can live together and learn how to love each other through difference, through conflict. And rather than that, they can learn how to love their neighbors well. And so bless this house with joy this year. Make it be a place of laughter, a place where they say we can give thanks to the Lord for his love indeed endures forever. And we pray that for all of us. And now, God, as we turn to your word, we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will come upon us and within us, that you will stir up in us the things that need to be stirred and help us to hear the things that we need to hear so that we can become more and more like Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.
We're looking tonight at the Gospel of John, chapter 6. If you've been worshiping with us this fall, you know we've been doing a series on the Gospel of John. John 6 can be found on page 867 in the black books around you, which are the Bibles. Page 867, John 6, reading verses 16 through 21. This follows immediately after the story we did two weeks ago about the feeding of the 5,000. When evening came, Jesus' disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were terrified. But he said to them, It is I, I am. Do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. If you walk into Meyer or Target right now, you will see a display of things that are supposed to be scary. Witches and goblins and skeletons. <laughs> things that are supposed to be scary. And now, for some of us, we have legitimate phobias like spiders or mice or clowns. Someone just uh, talked to me before I came here about sharks, an irrational fear of sharks. We have these things that we're afraid of, like, you know, some of us freak out if we see these things. Skeletons at, at loft, for example. Maybe, <laughs> maybe a thing. Maybe a thing. But there are actual deeper fears that we all carry within us. And these deeper fears, they don't really put up a display at Target about. There's no display that says fear of failing out of college. That, that's not up there. Fear of the cancer coming back, that's, that's not something you could display. Fear of our parents' separation turning into a divorce. Fear of not getting into the nursing program. Fear of graduating and never had gone on a date. Fear. There are deep fears that each one of us carry. Every one of us carries some deep fear. Sometimes other people know us well enough and they know our fears, but a lot of times we keep those fears under wraps. We keep them close. Fear. It's a common human experience. It's a shared human experience. And the problem with deep fear is that unlike a haunted house, we don't know when it's going to end. And unlike a haunted house, we don't know if it's real or fake or... So we just kind of keep it tucked and hidden away. The story that we read is a story at its heart that's about fear, about being afraid. And one of the things of which the disciples were afraid, ironically, was probably the sea. 
You see, in, in Israelite culture, the sea was a place of chaos. It was a place of monsters. And the Sea of Galilee in particular, because it was so deep, there were these stories about the devil living deep in the middle of the sea. There were stories about people lost at sea and their spirits haunting other people. And so here the disciples are. It's a dark and stormy night. They are on the water. They are straining at the oars. Now, some of them were fishermen, but let's be clear, not all of them were fishermen. You know, somebody on that boat was like, I do not like boats. <laughs> not into this. Tax collector, right? <laughs> Zealot. Interesting occupation, but not about boats, <laughs> right? So you've got a few people who are relatively comfortable, but you've got a, several people who are really kind of freaking out, and they're all rowing, and the storm is getting bigger, and the waves are getting higher, and then you know somebody says, what's that? <laughs> and they all look. And one guy who's not looking is like, keep rowing. What are you doing? Why are you all stop? <laughs> and they see this form walking toward them on the water. And every single horror story that they've ever heard about the spirits of the deep coming up to haunt the sailors is all coming to them. They are terrified. This is everything they have ever feared coming true in one moment. Their bodies are going to be lost at sea. This ghost is going to drag their souls down below. This is it. This is how their story ends. Everything they have ever feared is coming true. Everything they have ever feared is coming true. And that actually happens. Some of you know Olivia Haverkamp, who's a senior at Grand Rapids Christian, where some of you went to high school. And a couple years ago, she was diagnosed with Ewing's sarcoma, which is a particular type of cancer. And she went through treatment, and it looked like it was beaten back. But it returned this summer. And the treatments didn't work. And a couple of weeks ago, the doctors told Olivia and her family that there's nothing more that they can do. And so instead of preparing to come to college, Olivia and her family are preparing for hospice. And everything her parents have ever feared is coming true. They have been afraid of this ever since Olivia was born, and not because there is some predisposition to cancer, but because every parent, from the moment a child is born or adopted into a family, there's this little bit of fear that just takes up residence in their hearts. That something's going to happen to their child that they cannot prevent. This is why when you started driving, every time you left, they were like, okay, be careful, wear your seatbelt, tell us, don't text and drive. Like every time, they may still do this. This is why when you go and you stayed overnight someplace, they were like, you know, tell me when you get there. 
This is why they still, to this moment, freak out if you do not text them back. Text your parents back. <laughs> because ever since you became part of their family, they have had fear about you about something happening to you that they could not prevent. That is their greatest fear coming true. Can I have a witness from the parents in the room? <laughs> For Brad and Cindy Haverkamp, everything they've ever feared is coming true. It happens. Cancers come back. Marriages break up. Families say estranged. You don't get the job. You have another miscarriage. You don't get into graduate school. And because we hear enough stories of people's fears actually happening, actually coming true, what happens when we start to imagine out our stories is that we imagine them with the worst possible outcome. This person graduated and still doesn't have a job three years later? That's going to be me. This person never had a date and they're still single and they're 36? That's going to be me. This person had a chronic illness and it actually got worse rather than better? That's... That's going to be me. This person's family fell apart. That's going to be me. This person didn't make enough money to pay things off and lost their house. That's going to be me. And we take every possible thread of storyline in our lives and we see it through to the worst possible conclusion. That's fear. That's what fear does. And so we regress and we try to control absolutely everything in this part of the storyline so that part of the storyline doesn't happen. Our response to fear is control. If I can control this, if I can control my GPA, if I can control who I go out with, if I can control who's attracted to me, <laughs> I can control this part of the storyline and I can somehow guarantee that this won't happen. If I eat right and exercise, I'm going to live a long time. I can control that outcome. Which is a lie. And the enemy really loves it when we get really focused on our fears. Because it's paralyzing. It's crippling. When we imagine our storylines always ending in the worst possible way, that's a storyline without God. The enemy loves it when we dwell in our fears. For some of us, we bear witness to lives where every fear they ever had comes true. It happens. It doesn't happen to everybody all the time but it happens. For the disciples in this particular moment, every fear they had ever had was coming true. They were going to die alone on the water. No one would ever find them. Imagine them. They're drenched with sweat, even in the rain, 
because they are so anxious and so scared. Their hands now are just ripped by the oars because they've been pulling and pulling for so long. Their hearts are beating out of their chests as this thing gets closer and closer and closer and they can't row away from it. Everything they had ever feared was coming true. And in a moment, they hear a voice. And the voice says, I am no fear. That's literally what the Greek is. I am no fear. And can you imagine the relief in the boat at that moment? Can you imagine all like, oh, God. I want to know, did anybody in the boat say, are you kidding me right now, Jesus? Scared the crap out of us. I don't know. I'm, I'm putting my money on Peter, but I hope somebody, somebody said something like that. Because they're, they're just exhausted. They are at their end. And then, you know, they're all like hunching over their oars and wiping their brows and they look up and they're right where they wanted to be. And so they, they're on the shore and they start unloading things and, you know, they open up that one storage hatch and they find 12 baskets of leftover bread. And they're like, oh, that's right, that happened. Call that out, give that up, you know. Walk on up to Peter's house in Capernaum. His mom gets up, come on in, everybody come on in. They're all starting to fall asleep because they're just, they're just done. And they're trying to figure out what has happened in the last 12 hours. What just happened to us? We watched this guy feed thousands of people. We still have the barley loaves. And then what was that? What, what was that? He walked on water. I mean, he walked on it. He walked on the water. And then, boom, we were right where we wanted. Like, he came. We were terrified. He came. He said the words. We were there. Like, what was that? You can imagine them, you know, pulling off the wet clothes and putting their jammies on. And one of them starts to hum. And they're like, what? Stop. What are you doing? It's bedtime. Like, stop. No. He says, wait. Going through the verses in my head. Guys, I think we need to I think we just lived Psalm 107. And they all start going, oh, yeah, they do. Oh. Because this is what the verses are. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on the mighty waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep. For he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their calamity. 
Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they had quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. They lived Psalm 107. And this whole walking on the water thing, this is a weird miracle. Can we just say that? This is a weird miracle. I mean, nobody gets healed. Nobody turns around and goes back changed. The only people who, figure, who know what's going on are the disciples. And they were so scared, they really couldn't take it all in. This is like the water into wine miracle. Remember that one? Way back at the beginning of the semester? It's like that one. It's like just a few people know. And the point is not a zazz. The point is not to show off. The point is to demonstrate that he is God. God is the one who walks on the water. If you look in the Psalms, if you look in Job, there are more references to God walking on the water, leaving footprints in the sea. The only one who does that is the great I am. So here they are, picture them, all spread out on the floor in Peter's house, and they go through Psalm 107, and then they all start to look at each other, and then Jesus is in the corner, probably the one like. <laughs> You're getting it. You're getting it. I am the great I am. I am no fear. I move toward your fears. I move toward your fears and I say the words, do not be afraid because I am is here. Do not be afraid. I will get you where you need to go. Do not be afraid. I will get you to the desired haven. Do not be afraid. I am is here. The great I am is here. Do not be afraid. There are people on this campus who are living out their worst fears. You have professors who've lost children and they go into classrooms every day to teach other people's kids. You have children in your residence halls who've lost parents. And they hear you talk about your mom, your dad, your stepmom, your stepdad. We have too many people on this campus who are undergoing chemotherapy right now. And they keep coming to work, to class. We have people on this campus who go to meetings. They go to AA, they go to step one. We have people on this campus who are living out and living through their greatest fears. How? How do they do it? How do you walk into a classroom of 20-year-olds when your son killed himself at the age of 20? How do you do that? because the great I am is with you. 
And we don't make light of this. And we don't just say Jesus is the band-aid. And look, Jesus is there, so they're fine. Let me tell you, it's hard. We have people on this campus who every day get up and they come here and it's the hardest thing they have to do and they keep doing it because the great I am is with them and says, do not be afraid. I am. I am. And the difference between living a life where you imagine out every possible worst-case scenario and the difference of a life where you're able to walk toward your greatest fear is hope. Because the great I am, Jesus Christ our Lord, has died and risen again and guaranteed our eternal future. Olivia Haverkamp posts great things. She does that not just because she has hope for Jesus for this life. She does that because she knows her eternal future is secure. Brad and Cindy are walking toward their greatest fear, and they're going to get through it, and they're going to keep going step by step by step because their eternal future is secure, and that gives them hope for now. Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow. That's not just a line in a song. That's the effect of the great I am in your life. If you want to know how people do it, if you want to know how people get up the next day, it's because the great I am gives enough hope for that day to say, I will get you through today. I will get you through this. Do not be afraid. And let me tell you, some of our friends who have lived through their greatest fears, you'll find they're pretty fearless about a lot of other things because they have a very healthy perspective on what really matters. And all those things, those storylines that we worry about, they know that none of those things really matter because God knows how our stories end. God knows how our stories end. And your earthly journey may contain suffering. No, your earthly journey will contain suffering. It will contain heartache. It will contain sorrow. It will. But our future is secure because of Jesus. And Jesus moves toward our fears. You want to know what he was doing before he came on the water? He was up on the mountain praying. Praying for his disciples. Praying for his people. Praying to listen to his father. And when his disciples cried out, he came toward them. He comes toward our fears. And he says, I am. No fear. In the third book of the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis tells the story of Shasta, a boy who's been abandoned, a boy who's faced a lot of fears. And at this point in the story, he is alone, and he's feeling dejected, and he's riding a horse that won't go very fast. And I'll edit a bit. 
But think of John 6 and listen. I do think, said Shasta, that I must be the most unfortunate boy that ever lived in the whole world. Everything goes right for everyone except me. Have you ever thought that? Those Narnian lords and ladies got safe. I was left behind. My friends were all snug with that old hermit. I was the one sent on. The king and his people got safely into the castle and shut the gates, but I got left out. And being very tired and having nothing inside him, he felt so very sorry for himself that tears rolled down his cheeks. What put a stop to all this was a sudden fright. Shasta discovered that someone or somebody was walking beside him. It was pitch dark, and he could see nothing, and the thing or person was going so quietly that he could hardly hear any footfalls. What he could hear was breathing. His invisible companion seemed to breathe on a very large scale, and Shasta got the impression that it was a very large creature. And he had come to notice this breathing so gradually that he had no idea how long it had been there. It was a horrible shock. It darted into his mind that he had heard long ago that there were giants in these northern countries. He bit his lip in terror. The thing, unless it was a person, went on beside him so very quietly that Shasta began to hope that he had only imagined it. But just as he was becoming quite sure of that, there suddenly came a deep, rich sigh out of the darkness beside him. That couldn't be imagination. And he had felt the hot breath of that sigh on his chilly left hand. If that horse had been any good, or if he had known how to get any good out of that horse, he would have risked everything on a breakaway and a wild gallop, but he knew he couldn't make that horse gallop. So he went on at a walking pace, and the unseen companion walked and breathed beside him. At last, Shasta could bear it no longer. Oh, are you? He said, scarcely above a whisper. One who has waited long for you to speak, said the thing. Its voice was not loud, but very large and deep. Are, are you a giant? asked Shasta. You might call me a giant, said the large voice, but I am not like the creatures you call giants. I can't see you at all, said Shasta, after staring very hard. Then, for an even more terrible idea had come into his head, he said, almost in a scream, You're not something dead, are you? Oh, please, please do go away. What harm have I ever done to you? Oh, I am the unluckiest person in the whole world. Once more, he felt the warm breath of the thing on his hand and face. There, it said, that is not the breath of a ghost. Tell me your sorrows. Shasta was a little reassured by the breath, so he told how he had never known his real father or mother. He'd been brought up sternly by a fisherman. Then he told the story of his escape and how they were chased by lions and forced to swim for their lives and all of the dangers and about his night among the tombs and how the beasts howled at him. He told about the heat and thirst of the desert journey and how they were almost at their goal when another lion chased them and wounded his friend, and also how very long it was since he had had anything to eat. 
I do not call you unfortunate, said the large voice. Don't you think it was bad luck to meet so many lions, said Shasta. There was only one lion, said the voice. What on earth do you mean? I've just told you there were at least two the first night, and there was only one, but he was swift of foot. How do you know? I was the lion. And as Shasta gaped with open mouth and said nothing, the voice continued. I was the lion who forced you to join with your friend. I was the cat who comforted you among the houses of the dead. I was the lion who drove the jackals from you while you slept. I was the lion who gave the horses the new strength of fear for the last mile so that you should reach the king in time. And I was the lion you do not remember who pushed the boat in which you lay, a child near death, so that it came to shore where a man sat, wakeful at midnight, to receive you. Who are you? asked Shasta. Myself, said the voice, very low and deep so that the earth shook. And again, myself, loud and clear. And then the third time, myself, whispered so softly you could hardly hear it, and yet it seemed to come from all around you. Shasta was no longer afraid that the voice belonged to something that would eat him, nor that it was the voice of a ghost. But a new and different sort of trembling came over him, yet he felt glad too. After one glance at the lion's face, he slipped out of the saddle and fell at his feet. He couldn't say anything, but then he didn't want to say anything, and he knew he didn't need to say anything. He's always with you, and sometimes our fear makes it really hard for us to recognize him. But he's always there with us. He moves toward our fears. He comforts us in our fears. And he has promised us in the new heavens and the new earth that one of the things that will be conquered, one of the things that will be pushed away forever and ever, one of the things that we will never have to worry about ever again is fear Because when we are in the presence of the almighty God, the great I am, the only response is to fall down and worship. And fear has no place. The great I am is with you. Pray for the eyes to see him, to recognize him, to follow him. I am, he says, no fear. Will you pray with me? Our great I am, in this room, we carry fear. Fear about people we love. Fear about our futures. Fear about the present. 
move toward us in our fears. Walk beside us. Help us to hear your breathing. Remind us that you are the great I am, the myself, the one we need. Remind us that in you, we always get right where we need to go. Thank you for being the great I am. We pray this in your name. Amen.